Welcome back, everyone. Now that we have some general information about functional disorders and their diagnosis, we are ready to dive into the world of underlying mechanisms in functional disorders. Do you know someone whose pain just doesn't seem to go away? Do you know someone who's tired all the time? We just don't know why. Well, we know a few too, and we want to find out why and how to make it better. This is Not So Invisible, the podcast about the truth behind functional disorders. So, what are functional disorders? What causes them, and what are the best treatments out there? And what's happening in the body? Why is there so much stigma attached to these conditions, and how can we best tackle them? And why do you need to know more about them? We are scientists new to the field, starting a journey, exploring the subject. As we learn more and more through our research, we want to share what we're learning and share the experiences of people with these disorders. We also want to explore the evidence, find out the truth and erase misconceptions. So join us and let's make functional disorders not so invisible. So we are in Budapest right now because we are currently participating in a training week here, which is all about mechanisms underlying functional disorders. And who are we? My name is Franzi. This is Zaya. And I'm Tara. And we are researchers still early in our career in the field of functional disorders. And we are on a quest to find out more about the underlying mechanisms of functional disorders. In my research, I'm examining the cognitive and emotional factors that relate to symptom perception and how we can influence these factors to lower symptom burden for people living with these disorders. Mm. And my work's investigating dysfunctional breathing patterns and dysregulated stress response systems as mechanisms underlying functional disorders. And I investigate deficient sensory motor processing in the brain as one underlying mechanism in patients with various different functional disorders. So, as um, a patient that I'd like us to consider for the rest of our podcast, I'd like to introduce a 47-year-old female who had an infection following a virus that impacted her lungs and created persistent breathing problems and dizziness that are still there, even though all scans are now clear and the patient has been treated. Okay, so now that we have this idea of a patient in our heads, let's start and talk about mechanisms. So I think when we talk about mechanisms, we're really asking ourselves, what is it that's going on in the body of a person with a functional disorder? And this question doesn't have a trivial answer to it because it's an incredibly complex disorder and can present in various forms of symptoms. The last podcast episode on diagnosis already touched on this, but I think the complexity or for the most part also the invisibility of the disorder is also why physicians and patients face so many obstacles in confidently diagnosing a functional disorder. Because measuring a functional disorder kind of falls outside the more traditional means of testing mm -hmm. for an illness or a disorder such as a scan, a nasal swab or a blood test. Honestly, I think the complexity around what a functional disorder really is plays a huge role in creating the stigma that is related to these disorders, because understanding what is going on here is much more difficult and less obvious than, for example, when you have a broken leg. Mm -hmm. That's so true, Tara. And I think there's also been a recent push in the research to identify common mechanisms that underlie a range of functional disorders. 
And thereafter, there's an emphasis on diagnostic and treatment options that are based on these mechanisms. So our hope for this podcast episode is to bring some light into the darkness or clear the fog around what we mean when we talk about functional disorders. So as we've been discussing with the complexity of these disorders, I think it's really important that we begin by emphasizing that we need to utilize a biopsychosocial approach to understanding how symptoms can develop and even more so how they can persist over time. Very true. Yeah. So one facet of understanding functional disorders has been through a neurobiological lens. And this suggests that repeated or prolonged exposure to both physical and or psychological stressors can actually ch lead to changes in our nervous system. So this can result in increased perception of pain, but also of other stimuli. So this in turn affects our autonomic functions, things like heart rate, digestion, even breathing. So really, there are a number of biological factors, uh, including neuroendocrine and immune responses, as well as neurotransmitters and neuroinflammation that have been associated with functional disorders. And while dysregulation in these systems can contribute to predisposing, precipitating, and perpetuating factors in functional disorders, I think they're all just part of a wider and a lot more complex framework to be able to understand their mechanisms. Oh yes, so while biological factors undoubtedly play a role in the mechanisms behind functional disorders, I think it's also important to understand how factors such as perception, emotions and processing of sensory information can really broaden our understanding of functional disorders. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, Franzi. This brings us to my research. Um, I research something called interoception, which means uh, how we perceive inner states in our body. For example, knowing whether we're hungry, thirsty or having bowel movements at the moment. So in research so far, there have been quite a few fun experimental uh, setups, if I may say so, where people were um, asked to count their heartbeats, their gastrointestinal movements, those kinds of things. And the th uh, theory was that people with functional disorders would be much better at these tasks than people without functional disorders. However, this turned out not to be true and our view on these things has changed. Now we're thinking more of interoceptive attention to the body than accuracy as an underlying mechanism. Mm. I think this also really relates to the way our brain works because how we perceive our world is of course um, influenced by sensory input, but also through expectations, knowledge and theories we have around in the world. Mm -hmm. These expectations, theories and knowledge are often called top-down factors because they are pre-existing and influence our perspectives. You might assume that they're not a big deal, but actually without these top-down factors, we would probably be unable to interpret social cues, read books at a normal speed or react to traffic. So it's really a fundamental part of how the brain works. Maybe at this point, maybe we should also talk about how perception works on a more fundamental level. So where do we start? 
Um, well, when friends or relatives ask me what a functional disorder is, and when they also have some time on their hands, I usually start out with the small building blocks of perception. So how does perception and specifically symptom perception work in all of us? And since we do have some time on our hands now, I'd say we take a little detour and talk about how our brain makes sense of ourselves, so what is going on within our body, and how it makes sense of the world, so what is going on around us. And for that, I would like to introduce you to the so-called predictive processing model of brain function. Now, this is a term that you do not have to remember by heart, but the nice thing about it is that it can provide us with a useful sort of framework to explain how we may form a percept. And it helps us to understand how our brain can create the percept of a bodily symptom. So when I was younger, I thought that perception is something very straightforward and linear. For example, if I want to see that microphone in front of me, Then I just open my eyes, the light waves reflect from the object back onto my retina. From there, electrical impulses travel further to my brain and bam, clear-cut picture. But of course, perception is not that easy. And I think that you and also everybody listening all had experiences of when you perceived something that turned out to be quite different in reality. Mm. Do you maybe all remember the striped dress that was all over the internet in 2015? Oh my goodness, oh, yes. yes. Yeah, definitely. It was all over the pop culture news back then. But if you haven't heard of it, you can just Google striped dress 2015 and it will come up immediately. And well, for me, that dress is gold and white 99% of the time. But what does it look like to you? Well, to me, I have to say it's clearly black and blue. Absolutely not. It is definitely white and gold. <laughs> Same. So, and by the way, the dress is blue and black in reality. So no. even though we are looking at the same photo right now, our perception of that photo is quite different. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But I mean, think about it. Our brain is pretty much a prisoner in our skull because it only has access to the outside world and also to the rest of our body through our sensory organs. Mm. And for our brain, that means it is very busy all the time and constantly bombarded with information from all our sensory organs. And now put yourself in the shoes of your brain. All that information would really be a lot to handle all at once. And on top of that, we also know that the information our brain receives can be noisy or ambiguous because our biology doesn't exactly come with a high definition setting. <laughs> So even if we would lie totally relaxed in a quiet and dark room, there would still always be some random discharges from our neurons or receptors in our body. Mm. And on top of that noisiness, the information to travel from our sensors to the brain takes some time as well. Mm -hmm. So I guess all in all, what we're saying is the world is a complex place. And if our brain was to act on all of the information in that moment, completely unprepared, you'd, for one, be very overwhelmed within this vast sea of information and very, you'd most likely not be able to act or react appropriately or even in time. Yes, exactly. Well, but luckily, our brain is not just patiently sitting there in the skull and waiting for information to arrive. 
But actually, our brain is a very active processing device. It is actively predicting and inferring what is in and out there. So what is happening in my surrounding, but also what is happening in the body. And it does that with a little help of what we may call an internal model, which is a model that we all have and that we constantly feed and update with information as we walk through life. Yeah, so for example, this internal model might contain conscious but also unconscious knowledge on what coffee does to our body or what a door sounds like when someone's about to slam it shut, what it feels like when we're hungry or maybe what what your friend Nicola looks like. Oh, so I look different to the both of you? Maybe. <laughs> It'd be very confusing if we all look the same to each other. <laughs> So, so over the years, the brain constructs a model of our internal and external world that we use to explain and predict what's happening in specific contexts. Yeah, and this is also the current stance in neuroscientific research. So what we perceive is always a mix of predictions from our internal model and the input coming from the sensory organs. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So what you're saying is that every one of us perceives reality not as a sort of objective reality, but that there's always like a sort of layer of processing and mm-hmm. inference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So in, in functional disorders, it seems to be the case that the brain relies too heavily on wrong internal models, mm-hmm. which then buys the way our brain forms the eventual percept. So in the end, you can end up with a bodily percept that is still a mix of internal model content and actual sensory input. But this percept is then heavily dominated by the internal model. But also what I think is very important to say at this point is that to you as a person, it doesn't matter how much of what you perceive is due to sensory information or due to internal models. Because what you perceive in the end is simply reality for you. And that reality is not intentionally created, faked, exaggerated or imagined. Because in the moment of perception, you're not able to discern how much of that perception is due to sensory input or due to your brain's internal model. Mm. Just like you can't make yourself see the striped dress in a different color, even mm-hmm. if you really want to. Yes. Very true. So I'll always see it as white and gold. I think one of the reasons why mechanisms of functional disorders are so difficult to grasp is because of the uh, involvement of our brain's internal model. And that's something that, to a large extent, happens automatically without our voluntary control. Mm -hmm. And I guess most of all, we can't really see this internal model. It's not as if we can take a picture of it or a scan of it, like we're able to do maybe for a broken bone. Well, actually, scientific research is working a lot on making this internal model, or at least its contribution, more visible. Interesting. Mm. Let me maybe give you an example that also relates to our patient. So we have talked a lot about internal models and their role in perception now, but it actually doesn't stop there. So, for example, we know that the brain and its internal model also determine, determine how we move. And as a very simple example, if you turn your head from one side to the other, the brain also relies heavily on an internal model to know how strong the muscles need to contract, how heavy your head is or how fast you need to move. And at the same time, the brain takes into account what feedback is elicited by this movement. Mm. So did you make a smooth head movement or was it maybe wobbly? Did you move the head a little too far? 
The brain uses this feedback to then adjust the internal motor model over time. So this does actually ensure that you can make smooth and accurate movements. Yes. Mm -hmm. So even in such a very simple movement, such as turning your head from left to right, the brain's internal model plays a very crucial role. And in our lab in Munich, for example, we are looking into the role of our internal model in doing simple large gaze shifts. So we in white people with dizziness, for example, into our lab and we measure their eye and head movements while they are making a lot of large gaze shifts from one side to the other. And there's a very nice thing about this simple movement, because we know from a lot of previous research that if we want to make a smooth head movement, while also keeping our eyes and the visual image stable, we need for one an internal model that is perfectly tuned to our head characteristics and the context that we are currently in. And two, we need to be able to process information from our balance organs and then combine this with their predictions from the brain's internal model to execute the correct motor command for this one gaze shift. So the researchers have looked at the stability of the head and the eyes in two patient groups. One group um, were patients with functional dizziness and the other group were patients with damage to their vestibular system. So mm -hmm. these were patients who cannot process any information from the balance organ anymore. And what they found is that compared to the healthy participants... In the dizziness patients with the damage to the balance organ, this happened because of the missing sensory information from the balance organ. But in the functional dizziness patient, this happened because the internal motor model necessary for even such a simple head shift seemed to be incorrect but very dominating, mm -hmm. which then results in the execution of a suboptimal motor command. And this can be seen as instability or wobbliness of movement. Interesting. Yeah. And actually what was really quite remarkable is that, for example, the wobbliness of the head of the functional dizziness patients was just as bad of that um, of the patients with the completely ba uh, damaged balance organ. And I think this also really illustrates the level of impairment and how much patients with a functional disorder really suffer. But also it's kind of good news for the patient as well, because now we can actually objectively measure this impairment in the lab. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's really interesting, Francie. And that's great that that's, it's something that's objectively measurable. Um, and it's also something that we, we don't just see purely in the vestibular system. This is something that we see in other systems as well. So take, for example, uh, the respiratory system, which is actually the focus of my research. Um, and it's arguably the most sensitive system to stress and to the external world. So breathing something that we all do all the time. It may even be something that we take for granted sometimes. But it's actually a very sensitive component of the stress response. And it can also become dysfunctional or dysregulated for a myriad of reasons. Maybe when we're experiencing pain or adverse emotions like stress or anxiety, uh, during stressful life experiences or events. So while all of these things can produce dysfunctional breathing patterns, dysregulated breathing can also in turn produce a lot of the problems and symptoms that we see. So have you ever noticed yourself um, holding your breath during a scary movie? Or kind of a change in your breathing when you're anxious or anticipating something. Yes, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So I think it's something we all experience. Um, maybe our breathing gets faster or more shallow during these, during these experiences. So this is our body's response to an anticipated need for increased metabolic demand. Or in other words, it's our body's way of preparing for a perceived threat, whatever that might be. So you may have also heard of the fight, flight, or freeze response. So this is our body's way of facing a perceived threat and is regulated by our autonomic nervous system. So by releasing stress hormones like adrenaline and cortisol, which cause things like increased heart rate, rapid breathing, and heightened alertness, we're able to quickly and effectively respond to whatever this threat is. So our body may also start producing these distressing symptoms without any consciously identifiable threat or even any pathophysiological change to our respiratory system. So if we think back to our patient, although their scans may be coming back clear following their infection, they're still experiencing distressing and persistent symptoms, including things like difficulty breathing. So from what we now know about the way that our body processes and perceives sensory information, coupled with increased threat sensitivity and expectations following the initial Im infection and what must have been quite a large impact on their breathing, the physiological stress responses, which in this case were probably symptoms of hyperventilation or dysregulated breathing, can be the result of a vicious cycle that actually maintains these symptoms. So if dysregulated breathing and the symptoms resulting from it can be impacted by the perception of our external environment and cues, surely our bodies and their regulatory systems must be also affected by our emotional states and the way we interpret things. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, Franzi. And like relating back to what Saya said about stress, mm -hmm. I think the most important thing that we see here is not the precise emotion, but actually like negative mood, or mm -hmm. as we psychologists call it, negative affect. Um, because say you have like some sort of bad experience, for example, oh, you have a, a very stressful talk with your, your boss. And um, after mm -hmm. that, you know, the rest of the day just feels absolutely terrible. But it was just that one experience, right, that is leading the rest of your day to be terrible. It's not like it's objectively such a terrible day. Um, and so this would really be a sort of situation where you should be using your uh, emotion regulation techniques to sort of be able to change your outlook onto the situation and how you feel about it. Mm -hmm. So this brings us to the end of the episode. We hope we've been able to bring across that mechanisms behind functional disorders are complex and that there are biological, cognitive, emotional and other factors impacting their occurrence. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will be about stigma and functional disorders. Mm -hmm.